As believers, uh, we need to have the courage to fight the fight of faith. It takes courage to fight the fight of faith. Um, let me just ask a couple of questions. Have you ever had a role of, of leadership that was difficult? Have you ever stood with a cancer patient who was dying? Have you ever gone through what seemed like unbearable financial stress while, while doing what you thought was for God? Have you realized that somebody was using you wrongfully or someone was taking advantage of you? Have you ever been deceived by somebody? Have you ever been rejected? Have you ever been left alone? And there are many other questions I could ask, but if you said yes to any of those questions, then the fact is you have been in the battle zone. It's a battle when we start serving God and the devil starts wanting to stop us. I mean, it's, it's a battle. When we serve God and we're fighting the fight of faith, the front lines are very exciting. It's a very exciting place to be. When you're on the front line, I mean, you see victories, you see all kinds of things, but it's also a very dangerous place to be unless you're properly prepared and armed and know what you're doing out there. Many people, over the years I've seen it happen, many people get wounded. It's one way or another they get wounded in this fight of faith. And they're in the battle zone. They get wounded and they give up on God. They give up on the call of God in their lives. In fact, Ryan's going to put a scripture up here in 1 Timothy 1.19. It says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Some people, they... they, they I mean, they're following God, and, 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 and they, get, they, get in this, they, get, they get here in the battle zone. They get in the fight, and they get in the fray, and somehow they get wounded. Their feelings get hurt, or, or whatever it may be. And so, and so the, the, the Bible says that sometimes they get there, and, and, and concerning their faith, they've made shipwreck. Overcoming those types of things that we've already mentioned here requires us to hold on to our faith. Faith can only come from the Word of God. And we must have a good conscience. The, word, the phrase good conscience literally means a good perception of who you are in Christ, of what God is calling you to be. Otherwise, that verse said we wind up being shipwrecked in our faith. That's not a good place to be. It's a ship crash is what it is. We'd probably call it a train wreck today. But when the ship wrecks and it sinks and its passengers drown, it's not a good thing. It, 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 many people get in a train wreck where their faith has run off the rails and it's crashed and, and they're, not, they're no longer going forward. It takes courage to exist in the battle zone. It takes courage. As we enter the last days, it's going to take courage to fight the fight of faith. As things, as things occur, not just in our society, but in the, in the global society, it's going to take faith to fight the fight. We're going to have to stand for God. Many Christians fail to engage the enemy in battle because it seems like it's hard because they're afraid to fail or whatever it may be what happens is what they what they don't understand is that to not fight is to surrender and to become a prisoner of war and then the devil has his say and he gets what he wants out of out of their lives they still get to go to heaven when they die but they're forced to live their lives now in the clutches of the devil jesus died for our liberty, we're to be free from the devil, from sin, the penalty of sin, the curse, and all that includes. We're supposed to have victory in our lives.
to succeed, though. See, we have to fight a fight. It's a battle, a fight of faith, the Bible says. To succeed in that battle zone requires fierce determination and faith that Jesus describes when he says the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. It, 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 understanding that we can't win the victory ourselves. There's no way that we have the power. It has to be His grace that builds the, the barrier, but we have to have determined faith that won't let go of what God has promised us. To succeed in the battle zone, we've got to understand the strategy, strategies or the wiles of the enemy. Ephesians 6.11 says that as we put on the whole armor of God, we can stand against the wiles of the devil. We need to understand, we've, we've got to be able to stand against him and have victory. The Bible talks about being vigilant because he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So there's a fight that we live. In the times we live, God, I believe he's looking for a special brand of believer who's willing to challenge the foe and willing to storm the gates of hell for the purposes of the kingdom. It's going, to take, it's going to take the courage to do what God told us to do. I believe this. We happen to be just the ones for the job. I believe it's people like you and me. God is looking for those who will willingly and courageously enter into the battle zone, knowing that it's His defense, it's His power, it's His success, His victory that we win. I believe He's looking for people who are willing to go in by faith with Him. He's looking for those who are willing to get to the point of no return, which is what we kind of talked about last week. Get out there by faith so that when we get out there, it's like, okay, God, you have to do it now because I can't go back. It's too late for me to, to, to give in here. It's the place where our utter dependence is upon Him. It's the place where we sink or swim, but we actually know we're going to swim because of His power that's upon us. Listen, the devil's going to throw all kinds of things at the church in these last days. Our, our job... And I've thought about this many times. Our job isn't necessary to survive. It's to succeed. And God has called us to the place of success. We don't have to survive, though. We simply have to follow Him to the place that He's called us to go, knowing that He has to take care of it. See, many become wounded, as I've already said. But more than the ones that become wounded, many people just defect because it gets hard because they get discouraged or they get frustrated and they leave the faithful ones to the fighting while they go into the comfort of hiding and into captivity. They just give up along the way. They don't want to keep up the fight in the midst of this, the warfare, the spiritual warfare that's going on. They become fearful. Sometimes they become fearful they'll be associated with people like you. They don't want to be connected with radical believers who are willing to stand by faith and to walk with God. They think you're going to fail anyway, so they don't want to be connected to that. They ultimately fail to fulfill God's intended destiny in their lives because they didn't fight through what God had for them. God is looking for believers who will step up and step forward to be counted for His glory in these last days. He's looking for warriors who, will, who are willing to step ahead of everybody else, look the enemy directly in the face and say, you'll not take this portion of the kingdom. I will advance it. I want us to look at a few scriptures this evening. Let's look over in the little book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and we're going to look in chapter 1. We're going to look at several verses of scripture here. 2 Timothy, we're going to look in the first chapter, down in verse 6. And, and these are fairly familiar verses to most people that have been around, especially Wednesday night Christians. These are fairly familiar to us. 
But the Apostle Paul is speaking to Timothy here. And in 1 Timothy 1 verse 6, he says, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting out of my hands. Now, it's interesting that the next verse is connected to that. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now, verse 8 is not my favorite verse of Scripture in the whole Bible, especially the last part of it when it says, Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. I don't know about you, but I'm not real fond of afflictions. Now, that doesn't mean sicknesses. It just means inabilities. All right, now, that's interesting. So Paul here, he's telling him, he, says, he tells him, you know what? You need to stir up the gift of God. You don't need to be timid. And you need, you don't be ashamed of me or Jesus. And you don't, you don't need, you need to step into the fray with me, is what he's telling him to do. Okay, let's look over the next chapter. That's chapter 1. Look in chapter 2. Chapter 2, look down in, in verse 3 of chapter 2. Now, this is, he says to, to Timothy, he says, Thou endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I don't like that one either. He's talking about afflictions. Now he's talking about enduring hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangled himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. He says, you need to be a good soldier. You need to endure hardness as a good soldier. He said, don't get entangled with what's going on around you, but focus on what the one who sent you sent you to do. Look over in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and we're going to look down in verse 12. I don't like this verse either. It says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So far, we haven't visited my favorite verses at all. I like the stir up the gift part. That was pretty good. But the next part, I didn't like as much. Okay, flip over to chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Talking about people around the church and the church people, some of the church people. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. I hate that part. Do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Now, we just saw four verses or four passages of Scripture. I mean, there... They're talking about there's a war that we're fighting in. They're talking about there are times in our walk with God that He assigns us to a place or a situation that it will take great faith and His power accomplished through us. It'll also, it'll also mean there's a, that, that, that the enemy, is, he's, he's going to know that it's there and we will have to learn how to fight through to see God's victory obtained. Let's look at those same passages in the Amplified Bible. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, through the Amplified. Here's what it says. It says, This is why I would remind you to stir up, rekindle the embers of, fan the flame of, keep burning the gracious gift of God, the inner fire that is in you by means of the laying on of my hands, 
with those of the elders of your ordination. For God, he's saying you've got to stir this up, because God did not give us a spirit of timidity, cowardice, of craven and cringing and fawning fear, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of calm and well-balanced mind and discipline and self-control. He said, do not blush or be ashamed then to testify to and for our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, for his sake. But with me, take your share of the suffering to which the preaching of the gospel may expose you and do it in, in the power of God. Now, that's, that's, that's pretty powerful. He's referring to courage to stay in the battle. He's referring to the courage to get past timidity. He says, we've been equipped to overcome timidity, which is cowardice, to overcome that with the power of God, the love of God, and the self-control that God has given to us. He said, he said, we're equipped to do that. He's telling us we must stir it up so we won't defect from the assignment when it gets hard. Apparently, and we'll talk about this as we go, it got hard. And Timothy is thinking about cashing it in and doing something else. We must never be ashamed of the Lord nor His Word in our daily stand of life. We must, we must never fear the persecution that may ensue and we must never be ashamed of our walk with one another. He's talking about being in the battle zone here. Being in a place where the fight is going on. Let's read that, that, that passage in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 from the Amplified. It, it makes a lot of sense when you read the Amplified, doesn't it? He says, Take with me your share of hardships and suffering, which you're called to endure as a good first-class soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier, when in service, gets entangled in the enterprises of a civilian life. His aim is to satisfy and please the one who enlisted him. This walk of faith is a fight. And we are in the army of God, the Bible says. I remember when we were kids, we used to sing that song, We're in the Lord's Army. Remember that? We'd, you know, I may never zoom over the enemy or whatever that was. And we sang it, but it was a cute song, but we didn't understand. We were speaking, we were speaking prophetic truth about our lives as believers if we matured in God. We're talking about fighting the fight of faith. I mean, ours is to consider the battle, not get entangled with all those other matters out there. Now, we have to be responsible regarding those things, but we're, we're, the fight is the fight of faith. The fight is the fight against a spiritual foe. All right? Ours is to fight that, faith, uh, that fight of faith in the spirit realm. We fight in that arena. We don't focus on the flesh until the spiritual is taken care of. We can't just reach out there and do something and not get in the spirit about it. Chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Indeed, all who delight in piety and are determined to live a devoted and godly life in Christ Jesus will meet with persecution, will be made to suffer because of their religious stand. <laughs> now, we're going to talk, as time goes on, not tonight, but we're going to talk about what that suffering is because we find in other passages of Scripture what that suffering is. And that suffering is not sickness, it's not poverty, but we'll find out what that is as we go on. All right? We can see, though, that we're in a battle. We're, it's a fight of faith. All right, let's, look, let's look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 7 from the Amplified. It says, For the time is coming when people will not tolerate 
endures sound and wholesome instruction, but having ears itching for something pleasing and gratifying, they will gather themselves to one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold, and will turn aside from hearing the truth and wander off into myths and man-made fictions. Does that sound like our day or not? It says, as for you, be calm and cool and steady, accept and suffer unflinchingly every hardship. Do the work of an evangelist, fully perform the duties of your ministry, for I am already about to be sacrificed. My life is about to be poured out as a drink offering. The time of my spirit's release from, my, from the body is at hand, and I will soon go free. I like that. I'll go free. I have fought the good, worthy, honorable, and noble fight. I've finished the race. I've kept, firmly held the faith. Paul is saying that his time of the fight is about over. He's departing into heaven. He's talking about what Timothy needs to be doing in the battle zone to fight the fight of faith. Tonight, we're going to begin looking at a fight of faith. We're going to begin to talk about how to wage spiritual warfare. In our day, we need to fight a fight of faith waging spiritual warfare. Not war in our emotions, but war in the spirit. Sometimes it doesn't look like things are going to work out according to the promise of God. That's when we must engage in a fight of faith. That's when we must understand how to fight in the spirit. We win if we don't quit. And if we'll stay with the promise of God. So we're just going to kind of begin to look at that. What's happened here? Paul, every passage we read was the little book of 2 Timothy. Only has four chapters. We read one passage from each of those four chapters. And all four of those have to do with fighting. All of them have to do with hard times. All of them have to do with stuff that, that seems to be going on. Spiritual warfare is not something new. I mean, Timothy had to fight a spiritual warfare. The first century saints went through things that we have yet to ever encounter. Okay, it's possible it could happen, but we've never been through some of the things they've been through. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Now, he wrote 2 Timothy somewhere around 66 A.D., maybe 67, perhaps as late as 68, but most people think around 66 A.D. This book has only four chapters. It, it, it's short, but it, it's, it's talking about how to wage spiritual warfare. This is Paul's second letter to Timothy. Okay? If Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, is the fastest growing and largest local church in the world at the time. Timothy is the pastor. Many historians believe that over 100,000 people were under the oversight of the church at Ephesus. Now, there was not a single building for them to meet in, so they met in buildings all over the town, but Timothy was the uh, lead pastor, so to speak. He was the disciple of the Apostle Paul. He was his son in the faith, and so he was the leader over this. In 1 Timothy, if you read the book of 1 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy regarding the organization of this rapidly growing church. I mean, it's growing. People are coming from everywhere. And obviously, if you read 1 Timothy, Timothy has written a letter and said, how do you do this? What do I do? How, how, how do I pastor these people? What am I supposed to do? I mean, he, he, he didn't know how to organize this massive ministry. So Paul in 1 Timothy talks about deacons and elders. He talks about how young people are supposed to behave. He talks about how they were supposed to pay the pastors. He talked about all these organizational things. 1 Timothy is a book of instruction about how to organize the local church. 
But then we get to 2 Timothy, and this is a whole different matter. It's a different book. It's not about organization. It has a whole different theme. There's a whole different tenor in the voice of the Apostle Paul as he writes here. Paul now, after he's talked about how to organize the church, things begin to change, and now it's not going so well anymore. And so now Timothy has apparently written to Paul, and Paul's writing back and saying, hey, this is how you live in the combat zone. This is how you live where the battle is being fought. Things have changed. Timothy appears to be somewhat anxious over, over the declining condition of this church. Things have taken a turn, and it's not going good. First Timothy, everything is grand. It's going great. People are coming. It's wonderful. Second Timothy, there's some problems, and there's a spiritual battle that's taking place. More than spiritual, it's become physical, and, 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 and Paul talks about how to deal with it in the spirit. The church, in, in the church in those days, there's defection in that church. There are liars. There are betrayers. I mean, Timothy's dealing with these things on a daily basis. There's even scandal in the church. And he's dealing with all these things that are going on. He finds himself in this battle zone. Let me just say this to you. No matter how great things are, the Bible instructs us to always be vigilant because our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. To be vigilant, always standing, always living by faith, always walking by faith, and never getting to the place where, that, where that we're not prepared spiritually to encounter our enemy, to always be vigilant. Timothy, his predicament in, in 2 Timothy sounds a little bit like the modern church. The media is looking for scandals on the church, I mean all the time, and they often uncover them. The devil's goal, of course, is to convince the world they can't trust the church. They want to convince the world that the church's, church members are liars, they're thieves, and all those types of things. The failures of churches are magnified in the daily news that we read. We, we, we find there was then and still is a problem of people leaving, defections in the church. Timothy's church apparently is having a huge problem with people leaving, and we'll find out why here in just a minute. People were leaving. I remember in the 70s, and especially in the 70s, all you had to do to have church was to have a guy who could play the guitar and a place that you could gather in. I mean, if you had a guy who could play the guitar and sing worship songs that were not in a hymnal, I mean, man, people just came. I mean, you could have a prophet guy come in and he could prophesy and, and little bitty living rooms could hold all these people. He had prophesied to people and, or you have somebody teaching the word. People would just come. I mean, it was, they just flocked to it. But now we've progressed from, from, from this kind of a spiritual playground era where the devil wants to stop it. He doesn't want there to be a renewal in our nation. He doesn't want there to be an awakening. He wants to stop the church. He wants to stop people. He wants people to quit. He wants us to defect from the call of God and, the, and, 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 and what God's called us to. The battle for souls, the battle for sound teaching, the battle for the money to win souls and teach the Word is raging stronger today than ever before because Satan knows that if we, if we begin to teach the Word to people, and they begin to get revelation of, the, of what God is saying to them about who they are in Christ. And then they begin to reach out to lost people in the world. He knows that the harvest is at hand. And he knows his time is short. So, so we've left those days. We're at war whether we like it or not. We, we need to decide how we're going to look at it. So we're going to look at what changed Timothy and this church at Ephesus in, in the few minutes we have remaining tonight. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson if that's all right. I'm not a history expert, but through my research, this is what I discovered. What happened to, to Timothy 
and his church. And the reason 2 Timothy is about a battle and about fighting a fight of faith, where 1 Timothy is all about how good it was, something happened. And that thing that happened was one of the most evil men who ever came to power came to power in, in those days. That man was a man by the name of Nero Claudius Caesar Drusus Germanicus. Nero is what we know him as. Emperor Nero came to power. He lived from 37 to 68 AD. He became the emperor of Rome right after Claudius I named him to be his successor. Well, as soon as Claudius named him to be his successor, Nero had Claudius killed. So he could begin to, to, to have, and so he seized the throne. He became, Nero became the first of ten wicked, uh, demonized Roman emperors. I mean, right in a row. Not, the ones before him weren't that great, but Nero, starting with Nero, the next nine, I mean, he and the next nine, they were, they were just, they, they hated Christians with a vengeance. And they did everything they could to stop Christianity. Nero was personally responsible for the deaths of Paul and Peter and literally thousands and thousands of other Christians. He was, he was an evil man. During his reign and the following nine emperors, Christians were hunted down like wild animals and killed with vicious hatred. He reigned from just 54 to 68 A.D. Not a long period of time, but, but it's during that time that Paul's writing to Timothy. Okay, something has happened. Let's take a few minutes. The seeds of the demonic control that Nero had in Rome began with the reign of Octavian, who was actually four emperors before him. During this reign of Octavian, the empire, the Roman Empire, because it was so large and so diverse, they had taken up so much of the world. The, 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 the old school uh, Roman religion, you know the mythology that you learned in high school, that Roman religion had been... Had been watered down and people were no longer following the old school religion and no longer uh, paying homage to these idols and this idolatrous worship. But Octavian, he was very religious. He was very immersed in this pagan idolatry that his ancestors had. And he wanted, as, the, as Caesar, he wanted to restore that old religion to Rome. So he began, he began to, that by he, first of all, he and, and the Senate, they rebuilt the 82 temples of, of all these pagan gods, and he removed all literature in the whole nation that had anything to do with the more modern stuff, and the only literature regarding religion was the old literature about these 82 gods. He wanted to make sure people didn't learn anything except about those gods. And as a result, the kids were taught in school, the people began to hear, they began to think, and so that old religion became popular again. And so they began to be, be more after those Roman pagan gods. After him, the next Caesar was Augustus. He began to reign, and he established the beginnings of emperor worship in Rome. What happened was, because of the Greeks now that were under the dominion of the Romans, the Greeks believed that the reigning emperor, whoever that might be, was the incarnation of the supernatural and worthy to be called God and worthy of worship. Okay? The empire, through the Roman influence, because they had all these gods that they were worshiping, the empire was convinced to deify Augustus. And so not only did they have these these temples to these, these pagan gods the Romans worship, they began to build altars and shrines to Augustus Caesar. Okay, so they began to worship him. It was during this time, during Augustus's reign, that a new god was created in Rome. Not just Augustus Caesar, but they created a new god in the nation, in the empire of Rome, and that god's name was Roma. 
That was her name. She was called Roma, and she was called the mother of Rome. She was created in this, this, this reign of Augustus Caesar. The purpose of the creation of the god Roma was to unify the empire. The empire was so great, so diverse. There were these gods, but there were still all these different cultural things going on. During that day before, before Roma, the empire was permitted that I mean, anybody could have any religious function throughout the empire. Even Christianity was permitted before Roma came along. I mean, it was kind of like the United States. The citizens had the rights to worship any god they wanted. They were very uh, tolerant, and therefore many religions began to flourish, and the rise of the religious uh, factions created different political factions. And so there wasn't unity in the kingdom. Okay, because all, you know, these, these religious people felt like this was important. These religious people felt like that was important. And so they had to create something to bring the people into some kind of common idea, have some kind of unity. The central government was strong, but, but, there was, but the fear in the central government, but it was because of all these different factions that there would be a division and they'd have, to have, they'd have civil war. And so what they did was they created this god so they could have unity throughout their kingdom. And her name was Roma. She was to be worshipped by all Romans and thus to bring the empire into unity. See, the people loved Rome and they loved, what they, they, they loved the nation. They were very patriotic people. They were loyal to it as citizens, but they didn't all agree. So the, the leadership, afraid of the, the, fracture, the, the fracturing of the nation, they developed this god called Roma and they said that Roma, the goddess Roma, was the spirit behind the success of Rome. And because of her, Rome was strong. And because of her, Rome was successful. And so Roma became the Roman spirit. They developed a priesthood to Roma. I mean, they built temples to Roma. They gave offerings to Roma. It became the, Roma became the god to whom all, quote, good Romans paid homage. If you were a good citizen of Rome, if you loved your country, you worshipped Roma. She became the national god of Rome. Roma was the god that became the national religion of the Roman Empire. Roma was said to be the god that made Rome great. To speak against Roma, the god, S, was to speak against Rome because she made Rome great. They're very patriotic people, and so to speak against her was to speak against Rome. Roma and Rome then became interconnected over time, and they became basically one and the same. The Romans believed that without Roma, greatness could not continue in Rome. They felt like she was, was the god that did that. To defy her was the ultimate anti-patriotic act. To say, I don't believe in her, was political rebellion. They couldn't understand, the Roman people couldn't understand why anybody wouldn't worship their state god. Why wouldn't you worship her? She made us great. They couldn't understand how you could be a good Roman and not worship the great mother, Roma. They, they, they just felt like that was wrong. That, of course, became a deadly situation for the Christians as, as, as she grew in fame. During the reign of Augustus, when Roma was created, the title of Lord was added to his name. He became Lord Augustus Caesar. When he was called Lord Man, now they got another level of idolatry in the Roman Empire. The title Lord conferred deity upon the Caesar. It, it made him a part of the Godhead. It made the emperor then a part of worship, an object of worship. 
the people then, over time, began seeing Augustus and any Caesar after him as being the embodiment of Roma. Now, because he was the Caesar, he was a god, he embodied Roma, and now temples, especially with Augustus, beginning with Augustus, temples were built in the honor of the Caesar and of Roma because that was very important. It all occurred. Now, the interesting thing about Augustus is that all occurred during the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? They started calling this man God when the real man God was being born. The devil is always, always wanting to produce a counterfeit any time that he can. By the time Nero came to power, the emperor and Roma were the same to the people that to deny the emperor or to deny Roma was considered to be treason to the highest degree. I mean, it was a slap in the face to Rome. So that put the church in a terrible place. Roma and emperor worship was deadly. It was the most deadly thing that could have ever happened to the church whose only king was Jesus. It became deadly to them. The result was there was a vicious persecution of the church. Believers were hauled to public places. They were forced to stand under the Roman seal. They had to stand under the Roman seal. They had to bow the knee. They had to renounce Jesus. And they had to proclaim that Roma is God, that Caesar is God. And if they would do that, they could live. If they didn't, they died on the spot. And they just rounded them up. They made them do that. They were political rebels, according to them. Well, Nero, he was the most insane of all. I mean, while he, he was considered God by the populace, he still had to rule the government of Rome through the Senate. He had to go through them with all of his, his things. Now, he was brutal. I mean, he was so consumed with power that he was paranoid somebody was going to take it away. Obviously, he killed the guy who appointed him. So he's paranoid the same thing's going to happen to him. I mean, he executed his own mother. <laughs> he executed his sister-in-law. He executed his sister. He executed his wife. He executed many of the former teachers. In fact, he, he, he hired assassins and they carried out the murder of the majority of the Senate that was in power at the time. Anybody that opposed him. He was fearful that he would lose his power. He wanted to tear down. At one point he decided he wanted to tear down all of Rome and he wanted to build a statue of himself. He wanted to be a statue of the sun god and in the face of the sun god was going to be Nero's face. Because this was going to be a statue to his deity. It was going to be this enormous statue. He wanted to tear down the whole city, build a statue in the middle, and then rebuild Rome around the statue where everything would focus on the god Nero. I mean, he really wanted to redo it all. And so he went to the Senate. And when he got to the Senate, he said, he said, he said, he told him his plan. He was going to tear it all down. After all, he's God, and the people wanted to worship him, and he wanted to tear it all down. They said, wait a minute. No, no. They said, we can build a statue. We'll build a statue, but we don't want to tear our whole city down. Well, he, he couldn't handle that. He thought that way. He thought it infuriated him that they didn't. It, it reminds me, it reminds me of, of uh, uh, who was it, Ahab, that couldn't get the, the, uh, the, the, the vineyard of of the guy and Ahab and, and, Je and, and Jezebel comes in and says, well, I'll just kill him and you can have it, you can have it that way. Well, he was so mad, he was furious that they wouldn't give him what he wanted to have. So he went back to the palace and he, got, he hired a bunch of guys and he said, he, he told them to all take torches and to go to every part of the city of Rome and to start fires all over Rome. 
And so he sent these guys into the whole, into the whole Roman city, and, 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 and they started fires all over Rome. He burned the city to the ground. Historians say that the fire in Rome was burning as much as 30 days later after he did it. But he, he, he got what he wanted. He had Rome torn down with this, this huge fire. Once the city was burned, Nero, now he thinks, oh, I can build my city for myself. The only problem was he had to find somebody to blame the fire on. Okay, because if, the, I mean, in fact, they, they had him arrested, the Senate did, and they were bringing him in for trial, and they were going to, at the trial, they were going to go ahead and try him and have him executed because he burned their city down. He had to find somebody to blame. And on the way to the trial, he came up with a plan. And here was his plan. He said the Christians did it. He hated Christians. Romans didn't like the Christians very much because the Romans felt like they were not patriotic people. In the eyes of the Roman people, Christians were atheists because they did not worship Roma. They thought they were atheists. Christians would continually hold illegal private meetings in the catacombs wherever they could find a place to meet. Why? Because in the, in under, under Nero, you had to get, get his permission or the government's permission to hold a public meeting. And because Nero hated the Christians, he would not give them permission to meet. So they just met in secret, met in private. Okay? And so, so, so that, that bothered the, the Roman people because they felt like they were, they were not only atheists, but they were in rebellion to the government. Christians spoke of another king and another kingdom. The Roman people didn't like it. They didn't understand it. Their king was Caesar. Their god was Roma. And they didn't want to have another god. In Nero's mind and in most Romans' minds, Christians were planning a subversion of the Roman Empire so they could crown a new king. They didn't understand the gospel. They didn't understand what they were saying. They felt like they were going to overthrow them. Christians held these festivals that they called love feasts. That's where they would come together. They would eat a fellowship meal with one another. And then they would love on Jesus. And they would come together. Well, the Romans thought that was an orgy. They thought they were coming together, having an orgy, and they considered the Christians to be highly immoral and perverts. Then they had a bad reputation in, the, in that community. Okay? And another problem with the Christians was that they celebrated the communion where they ate the bread and drank the wine, which was the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Well, the Romans thought they were cannibals because they didn't know what all they were talking about. They didn't know. Now, the last thing that they heard about them, that they knew about them, was the truth. The Christians stood on the street corners of Rome, and they preached Jesus. And they preached the need to repent, and the need to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. They talked of an impending judgment that would come, where God would judge the world with what? Fire. The Romans had heard the Christians preaching fire and brimstone. And they heard them preaching about the fire. They heard them preaching about the fire, that it was going to come, that judgment would come, and it would come in fire. And sure enough, the fire came. The only thing was it wasn't God that sent the fire. It was Nero that sent the fire. But when Rome burned, the people remembered the Christians preaching about the fire. And when Nero blamed them, it was perfect. And now... They became enemies of the state. They became the most hated people of all, and that's when things began to change in Timothy's church. Before, everything was cool. Now, they're blaming the Christians for being anti 
patriotic. They're blaming the Christians for destroying Rome. I mean, isn't that like it is today? The media blames the Christians for the problems? It amazes me that, that, that we become the ones that, 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 are, that are intolerant. Blaming us for all the problems, for all the hatred. Man, I'll tell you, it was, it was a dark hour for the church. It was dark. It's maybe the darkest hour in the history of the church. Christians were hunted. They were tried. I mean, they would make them go through these long trial, long trial process so the government could get all of their money. They'd take them through the trial process, get all of their money, even though when the trial, when the first trial started, the moment they were arrested, the sentence was already given. They already knew it was going to happen. They'd go through the trial. They'd have to get all their money. They sentenced them. The predetermined punishment was always death. Nero had the most, the, the cruelest imaginable tortures that you could ever think of. I mean, he, 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 they, they erected huge griddles, huge griddles. And they would take Christians and they would literally fry them to death on these huge griddles. I mean, they were just cruel. He employed these guys that were skillful as filleters of animals who could fillet the skin off of a pig, you know. And he employed them and they would literally skin Christians alive. They wouldn't die, but they would skin all the skin off of their bodies. So their muscles, the blood vessels, the veins, all that was showing and then they would take that Christian who they had just skinned and they would throw him into the dung heap outside of town where they, of course, would contract all kinds of disease and all kinds of things would come and they would slowly die uh, because of the disease and it worked into their bodies and they would, they would have violent spas spasmatic deaths on those dung heaps because they couldn't get away. They were forced, as you know, we know this part, they were forced to fight gladiators. They would often wrap them in animal skins and throw them to lions or make them fight, fight wild animals in front of, of audiences. I mean, just like now, the devil was then out to scare the people off. He wanted to make people quit, make them afraid to become Christians, make them afraid to be a part of the church at Ephesus or wherever it was. He wanted to run them away. He didn't want them to be there. Nero created these huge slides, and, and, and Christians would have to climb up the slide. And on the way up, the, every step, they would demand that they renounce Jesus. They would demand it. And if they didn't demand Jesus, they got to the very top, they'd make them slide down. The only problem is the slide had a huge blade in the middle of it. And by the time the Christian got to the bottom, they were sawed in half. I mean, he, 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 was, just, he was just cruel. He was cruel. His, Nero's garden is, is, is a fairly, fairly famous thing in history, but he removed all the trees, all the plants from his garden, and he, he installed these huge stakes, kind of like telephone poles that are, that are in the ground, all right? And, and so, and then in another part of the garden, he instilled this huge tar pit, and he would dunk the Christians in the tar, and then he would tie them to these poles, and then he would light them on fire. The thing about Nero is, is that he was crazy. He was, he was way crazy. I mean, they were burned alive because he was determined to get rid of them. He wanted to hear the Christians scream and cry in pain. He wanted to hear them shout out and, 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 and even at that point reject Jesus. The thing is, instead of hearing them moan and cry, the Christians that were being burned alive quoted the Psalms out loud. They'd begin to sing songs where one would sing this part and another would sing that part and another would sing another part. He heard them singing 
in the Spirit. He heard, heard them praying in tongues. He heard them giving glory to God. In fact, instead of getting his satisfaction of hearing them scream and cry for pain in his garden, he heard them worship God. And ultimately what happened to Nero is he got totally insane and committed suicide. Well, those were pretty hard times. I mean, we're talking about living in the battle zone. I mean, when we look today, we can see there's a battle out there. We haven't faced those types of things. But the political climate in Timothy's day was tough. He was called to be the pastor of this church. He was called to do what God called to do. And in the book of 2 Timothy, which is what we're going to study for the next several weeks here, we're going to look at 2 Timothy and we're going to see how Paul tells him to fight the fight of faith in spite of the circumstances that were going on around him. We can learn in our day important lessons from this book. And we're just going to look at it. We're not going to study it verse by verse or anything, but we're going to look at some things in the letter of 2 Timothy. And we're going to see how in our day, in our time, we can stand strong in the battle zone. How we can stand for Jesus no matter what's going on around us in the battle zone. I know this. We need to know how to stand for God today. When we have a presidential election in less than a month, it doesn't matter who wins the election. It matters who wins it. But whoever it is is not going to solve what's going on in our nation. It's going to take people like you and me who are willing to fight a fight of faith, standing for Jesus in this hour. And we will see what God will do. And we'll see how we can stand strong and win in the battle zone. Let's pray together. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for great men and women who've gone before us. I thank you for people of faith who fought the fight of faith, who had success in the fight of faith, who fought for you and are honored by you. And they leave us a legacy. And people like the Apostle Paul leave us instruction on how we can fight the good fight, how we can say when we're ready to go that we're ready to depart that we fought the good fight of faith, that we've won, that we've finished our course. Lord, we want to do nothing more than to please you. We want you to be satisfied with us in this hour. If it gets tough or if, it's, if it stays easy, we want you to be satisfied. God, we give you all the thanks and we will. We will fight the fight of faith and we will win. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.